Hello, and welcome to Lens, the podcast brought to you by British Screen Forum. My name is John Gisby, and I'm delighted that you're listening. Hello, and welcome back to Lens, where we are speaking to the leading players in public service broadcasting about its past, present, and future. Our conversations so far have revealed different beliefs on the appropriate scale and scope of PSB, from a broad, universal public service that can shape our politics and culture, to one that is focused on the gaps that the market won't provide. But there's universal agreement that PSB should be a significant force in two areas of content in particular, news and children's. Everyone that I've spoken to agrees that these have been a mainstay of PSB provision in the past, and that they will continue to be needed in the future. So, in this episode, we're focusing in on news, and I'm delighted to be joined by Stuart Purvis, whose career as a journalist, broadcaster, regulator, and academic made him one of the key players in broadcast news over the last 30 years. In a wide-ranging and enjoyable conversation, we talk about impartiality, the importance of regional news, and his views on why public service provision is so important to healthy democratic debate. One of the things we want to do in these sessions is focus in on particular areas uh, that are important to PSB and vice versa. Uh, and uh, the first one we're doing is news. Um, I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Stuart Purvis. Uh, Stuart, thank you, for, thank you for being here. Thank you, John, for asking me. Um, for a man who no, needs no introduction in this space, I suspect, but, uh, but for, the sake of, for the sake of it, uh, started life as a local radio reporter, regional TV presenter, uh, one of the BBC's first ever news trainees back in the day, and then moved to ITN. Uh, RTS and BAFTA award-winning for news and documentaries before becoming editor-in-chief and CEO. After leaving ITN, um, visiting professor at Oxford, first professor of TV journalism at City University, Ofcom's partner for content and standards, advisor to DCMS and the House of Lords Select Committee, and a non-executive Channel 4. So across that enormous uh, and, and rich scope, uh, I suspect, are looking, at, uh, are looking at these issues from a number of different angles. Um, start with a really obvious and simple one, uh, but I suspect a little complicated. From your perspective, what is public service broadcasting and why is it important? Well, I'm a bit of a sort of terminologist on public service broadcasting because I used to be involved in Eurovision. And when I started talking about public service broadcasting, they said, you mean public broadcasting? I said, no, in, in Britain, we call it public service broadcasting. And they said, well, that's a good name. Why don't we call it public service broadcasting? What they basically they meant was that, let's call it state-owned, controversial phrase, BBC hates it, but publicly owned state-owned broadcasters. Uh, the European model was that if you received uh, advertising revenue uh, and you were not part of the official system, you were not allowed into public broadcasting. So for generations, German broadcasters were basically, they were public broadcasters and they were private broadcasters. And then the phrase public service broadcasting was actually invented by an American network, I think a guy from ABC, NBC back in the early days, to try to kind of sell commercial broadcasting as a public service. And somewhere along the line, Britain adopted public service broadcasting as a hybrid covering both a publicly owned, publicly funded broadcaster such as the BBC and a commercially funded, commercially owned broadcaster like ITV and then accommodated Channel 4 as a sort of sub-hybrid of a publicly owned but commercially funded and then added on Channel 5 and called that public service broadcasting. And I've always thought, well, will that hold uh, what in you know that's the way it was. It was a series of incremental steps, uh, and basically you could describe it as the British establishment in broadcasting circling the wagons around their own model, whether they were publicly funded or commercially funded, to keep others out. And uh, that it, it's surprising really that there have not been more challenges to that concept. Sky have obviously produce a, a, a range of products, of which Sky News is the one perhaps I'm most relevant to this conversation, which are not technically public service broadcasters, but actually in, in hours per day uh, and probably in budgets offer as much public service as uh, ITV News does. 
So why is one public service broadcasting and the other is not? And the other sort of dilemma I see along the way in terminology terms is in terms of having a news service. To me, there are different uh, scales of news services. There are ones which involve original broadcasting, original news gathering, and are shown on primary channels. And there are, and there are other versions which are almost using secondary news gathering, in other words, somebody else's news gathering, and are shown on, ma- on major channels. And there are ones which are using other people's news gathering and showing them on secondary channels. And so could I actually look ahead and say that there will always be original news gathering done by broadcasters and shown on their main cha- uh, main uh, channels, I'm not sure. Very long answer, but I put all my sort of doubts on the table there. Fantastic. I mean, it, it, it strikes me that at the core of that, and interestingly that you, you, you kind of go in that direction, you're almost defining it by the regulated institutions that exist rather than necessarily by the content, although there's a bit of overlap between the two. I mean, you, you, you get into interesting conversations around – um, you you bring up Sky News and other other genres are available. When is a David Attenborough nature documentary that's shown on Sky or Netflix any different in terms of its public service criteria or, or caliber than it would be if it's shown on the BBC? Arguably not. So how does it? How does one become the other? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you know I was only Ofcom for what two and a half years, and I I was a co-author of one of the public service broadcasting reviews and. At that point, the issue was not um, direct enough to have to address. But I'm surprised, really, that that in subsequent PSB reviews and other such reviews, there have not been more challenges, if you like, to, to some of these basic concepts. And the one that I've always, from a news point of view, been, uh, let's say, suspicious about was people who have said in private, though rarely in public, that they would actually like to move their news service to a to a secondary channel or a, or 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 online, uh, in other words, to take it off their major channels. Um, and I've been around broadcasters who've talked about that. I've even sounded out Ofcom when I was there about that. So it make it, again, it makes me it makes me concerned that the the, the future is not robust enough in terms of competition to the BBC coming from uh, other broadcasters. That's probably the bottom line of, of what worries me. One of the things that, that uh, I'm sure you'll be familiar with from your, from your Ofcom days, but, um, but also more generally in terms of how PSB has been set up, is the idea that it's important to being a citizen and making sure that the right information is available and consumed, not only available, but also consumed um, at reasonable scale. Uh, to inform democratic debates um, and so on, which is which is why um, when we've been talking to people about the two generic models of, of public service broadcasting, news is the one thing alongside children's that pretty much everybody agrees with. So there's a model that says, um, uh, I think David Putnam described it as you know if we can if we can justify a national health service for physical health, this is a kind of national this is the equivalent for citizenship and democracy and culture and entertainment and learning and so on. The other is that in a world where public service broadcasting supplements or provides the stuff that the market won't provide, the two areas people gen- generally agree on is is uh, is news and children. Why is news so important for public service broadcasting? And likewise, why is public service broadcasting so important for news? I think the um, it's based on the long-held uh, theory, which I think is is proven by the evidence, that broadcast news and television news in particular has more impact in, in delivering reach of information than the written press, uh, in the sense that it is uh, hopefully providing a bedrock of uh, impartial, accurate, uh, and relatively high standard uh, content. Now, that's not to say that there aren't elements of the Richard, uh, written press that are, are not pr- providing those elements, but it's, if you like, it's the reliability of a, almost an institutional delivery by a broadcasting institution compared to what might be seen as the sort of slightly unpredictable nature of the written press. Uh, as as well as the, sh- the sheer impact of broadcast journalism into people's homes. And I suppose at the end of the day, the power of the visual image. 
I mean, Sir David Nicholas, who was my mentor in broadcast news and who died recently, always used to say that we're in the photojournalism business. And I think that's really, that's what television news is all about. It is about photojournalism. And it's about valued photojournalism. And, and as, as long as that service is valued, then it would make sense for public service broadcasters to want to continue to provide it. Many of the roads lead to the conversation around impartiality. Um, and uh, my understanding is that impartiality obligations apply to anybody who's in the broadcast news business, um, not just as the public service broadcasters. So I guess two questions that, that, are, that arise from, well, a number of questions that arise from that, but certainly looking backwards, um, uh, if, if impartiality works, why do we necessarily need a plurality of voices in public service broadcasting? Uh, there appear to be a number of a uh, number of players out there who are not public service broadcasters who are providing news, um, and uh, so two two questions I, I think bundled into one. Firstly, how important is plurality overall, and secondly, how is that related to impartiality? It's a very good point, John. It's one that I've sort of struggled to get across over the years. So let's have another go. Basically, I think there are two different parts of of, of this. One is that when you are reporting, say, a debate, let's say a parliamentary debate is most of the example, you should, as a proper impartial public service broadcaster, give both sides of the argument or as many significant sides as there were to the argument. Whether you choose to cover that debate at all actually is an editorial judgment. It's actually saying, this is the agenda I believe is important for my audience, and therefore I have chosen to cover these certain items. So no broadcaster has ever been found to be breaching impartiality by not covering the story. Uh, so what do, we, what do we make of that? Well, we've made it, there's pretty much been a consensus in the UK through BBC, ITN and Sky about what was the news agenda of the day, but is also, in my view, very strongly important to have plurality on the agendas of the day. And that's because if it was just left to the BBC, the BBC's preeminence really in terms of, to a certain extent, reputation, more importantly, in, in reach, is that they would be only one news agenda of the day. And, and at times, the BBC almost boasts about how it sets the news agenda of the day. So to, to me, the plurality is about partly about the you know, in, 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 uh, plurality of views as expressed on a particular issue, but it's also about plurality of agendas. And that can only be achieved if you have more than one public broadcaster who is observing impartiality. And if I just give you one example from my, from my very long past, uh, the minor strike, uh, I was the editor of Channel 4 News. People said that, the minor, that Channel 4 News was on the side of the miners, not true. We were on the side of looking at a broader agenda about the miners' strike than BBC and ITV were, and I'd sort of defend that to the day. So that, that gives you an example of where you, you can be impartial in covering a particular angle, but actually you can be covering different agendas from other broadcasters. <clears throat> I think um, Clive Myrie has, has, uh, gave a speech that um, – uh, where he referenced the fact that the most trusted news provider in, in the US is actually the BBC um, in terms of audience surveys. To what extent is, uh, from, from your perspective uh, and, and your experience in this, to what extent is impartiality the kind of central pillar that makes that possible um, relative to the other news sources that are available in the market? And then I guess my second question related yeah, to that yeah. is, to what extent are the sands shifting as new players enter the market? Yeah. Um, well, look, the problem I have is with surveys based around trust, because when I actually was on a committee set up by the government to oversee uh, BBC World Service, we were provided with some fantastic research done by the BBC World Service. We're going back now over, over nearly 20 years, but actually I think the principle stands. And they shared with us their research into who are the most trusted broadcasters in the world. And sure, the BBC was high up there. But what was number one? Chinese central television. Now, what they meant 
you know, what I think the people who were choosing Chinese central television meant that they trusted that Chinese central television was the authoritative voice of the Chinese Communist Party. Not that it was anything any more or any less. So, yeah, I mean, you know, at ITN, I was always excited when ITN was either equal or sometimes even more trusted than the BBC. But ever since I saw that survey, I thought one should have a little bit of scepticism about what being trusted can mean. But to your, to, your, to your other point, and I think this is probably the most significant development in this area, in certainly in the last couple of years, has been uh, slightly shifting sands by Ofcom on this issue of what is impartiality in broadcast news. And it probably is, is shown most easiest by the examples of GB News, the, the, the 24-hour channel, and Talk TV, the, the other new uh, channel. Now, to what extent are these news? The Basically, what's evolved is a new definition. And I, I have to say, I don't think Ofcom has been entirely transparent about this. But if, you, if you're sad enough to, like me to kind of constantly go through the, the cases and work out what the hell is going on, you'll see that now Ofcom believes that what, what we used to call news bulletins, that's where there's a presenter, like there's Clive Myrie or Tom Bradby sitting there in a, with a half-hour news and in a reporter package, just, that's, that's news, okay? Now, all sorts of impartiality requirements apply to that. But what do you take, what do you call the Piers Morgan Uncensored show? I mean, that is a, a series of uh, items about the news of the day. It doesn't look like a news bulletin. And therefore, Ofcom has decided that that can be presented by somebody who has views. Uh, and these views don't have to be impartial as long as somebody else on the program reflects a different viewpoint. So you've also got you've now got two things which are one is definitely news and it's it's news bulletin and it's it's impartiality in the traditional sense and now you've got these other uh, this other product which doesn't actually have a name in Ofcom terminology which let's let's call it sort of in many ways it would be called current affairs in the old definitions is basically covering the news of the day in a slightly different way and it can have an opinionated presenter. And some people are still struggling to come to terms with that concept because they're not sure when one begins or another one, another one picks up. And I mean, the clearest example of that, if you look at Good Morning Britain, when Piers Morgan was presenting there, there was a bulletin presented by a newsreader for about five or 10 minutes and a plaque and a little banner said ITV News. And that was impartial in the old sense. And then up popped Piers, who was very unimpartial in the old sense, but apparently impartial in the new sense. Uh, complicated stuff given um, uh, given the way the market is shifting, given audience expectations, given, I suspect, uh, particularly with the, the, the prevalence of audience um, picking up stories from social media uh, that, are, that are essentially being tailored to their, to their needs by algorithms. To what extent is there a risk in the opposite situation? Um, and I'm... I'm uh, I'm going to read out a quote from from Paul Dacre's Cudlip Lecture, admittedly 2007, so some time ago. Um, the subsidiariat dominated by the BBC is distorting Britain's media market, crushing journalistic pluralism, and imposing a monoculture that is inimical to healthy democratic debate. So the risk of, of a, a purely impartial – he then went on to talk about scale um, – uh, big, perver- powerful, and pervasive, which was, which I think was, was, was more just the, the the kind of sheer scale of the BBC operation. But to what extent is uh, is the opposite potentially true? Which is that if you try and have completely impartial, you don't necessarily stimulate the debate in the first place, and at the same time, competing against people who try- who, who are trying to. Well, I think it's um, that sort of attack is it often comes from people who don't quite understand the, the kind of nuances I've been trying to offer in terms of different agendas as opposed to different viewpoints and things like that. So, if you take the, you know, you take the PSBs, you know, and if you applied uh, a test of who's a new, whose news agenda on they're on, not not whether they're partial or impartial, but whose news agenda are they on, you, you would put the BBC, ITV, Channel Four, Channel Five and Sky at different times of the day on, site, on slightly different, uh, on slightly different um, 
uh, agendas uh, compared to you know, making trying to find an equivalent with a newspaper. And so obviously, you know, people would say, well, you you would say that the BBC was was comparable to the Guardian. I don't think that's true. But I can remember certainly when I was in when I was a day to day editor on News at Ten ITV, we thought we were the Daily Mail. So you know, you know that, so that's pretty. And the Channel Four News, they probably think they're the Guardian. Um, so you know, you know, I think that that's a healthy uh, situation in the sense that you've got these different agendas, and you've got some some nuanced um, it, it, you know elements of partiality and impartiality going on. Well, I think the basic challenge to that whole system is where you have the same people, and let's take, for instance, Robert Peston, uh, who is, you know, on broadcasting, is covered by Ofcom regulation, and in his online blogs and other online content, which he does for ITV, he's not covered by uh, Ofcom regulation and produces quite a different product. And I can't, you know, we've lived with this as a growing challenge for some time. And then truth, I don't think anyone's quite found a solution to it because the more that the, 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 the more there's a converge between the broadcast product and the non-broadcast product, the more people are going to say, well, you know, why do we need this protection? I mean, if we need protection uh, in the form of we mustn't allow Robert Peston to speak his mind on television, what, what, what protection were being offered from Robert Peston online? I mean, when I was an Ofcom regulator, I always found it a problem with a judgment that says we are here to protect people. Because I thought, well, you know, if we're, if we're stopping different viewpoints being heard, how, how are we protecting them? So uh, I, I find this is, a, this is a debate that's going to go on and on, and I don't see any simple solution to it. <laughs> um. I, I'm, I'm going to bring up an anecdote here, which I think is, is sort of relevant. Uh, my wife is Canadian. My kids are all proudly half Canadian. And there's a Canadian news magazine called McLean's um, who ran a survey once for what is the equivalent of as American as apple pie. Uh, and the brilliant answer or winner was as Canadian as possible under the circumstances. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. a degree to which as the market shifts – um, and and as viewer tastes and technology shifts and all the rest of it, there's, there's a, 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 a sort of PSB and impartial as possible under the circumstances may be the best place that we can end up. Um, and and so long as we're clear what we're trying to achieve, that the the flex around the edges may may evolve over time. But it's uh, I, I, I get the risk. Um, I'm going to come on to ownership because again, from your from from being at ITN and from being at Ofcom, you'll have I suspect uh, complementary um, perspectives on this. In terms of the editorial agenda and the impartiality agenda, does ownership matter in broadcast news? Given that, in theory, you can you can shape remit and resource allocation by broadcasters uh, and impartiality through through licensing, so you can you can sort of say this is what this is what this this channel is set up to do. And I guess the easiest way of describing that is: Are there things that the BBC and Channel Four can do uniquely well because they're publicly owned? And the flip side, are there things that they struggle with because they're publicly owned? Well, uh, I think sort of an example of this is when I was sitting in Ofcom one day when Richard Desmond walked in, having parked his very extravagant automobile outside the front door of Ofcom to make a point, I think, to announce that he was buying Channel 5. Um, and immediately people began to wonder what Channel 5 would be like under Richard Desmond, because if you remember at the time, you also owned the Daily Express, which was, you know, from, from a very particular viewpoint. Uh, and Richard Desmond, it became clear, didn't really want to do the Daily Express on television. And nobody in that situation has ever wanted to do the Daily Express on television or the Sun on television. Um, and why not? Well, I think it's because the the tradition that you so well described there as being the sort of the best you can come up with in the circumstances has, has served the nation pretty well. And up until now, none of the people uh, in, in control or owning those channels we've talked about, particularly Channel 3 and Channel 5, ITV and Channel 5, has actually sought to completely challenge that, that tradition that we're talking about. But it'd be very interesting if anybody did. What Richard Desmond did do was by a series of contractual relation, uh, negotiations with both Sky and ITN to beat the price of Five News down significantly. 
And that's my experience is that the owners of uh, channels are more concerned about, um, about reducing the cost than they are about creating some new model which challenges the traditional version of broadcast news. They will perfectly well live with, uh, you know, those traditions and, and, and what some of us will think well, are the good things about those traditions as long as they can get their hands on the budget. And flipping it to the other side, so on the on the on the public public ownership, um, is the reverse true? Which is that uh, there there are commentators out there who say that um, if you are if you have public purpose baked into your um, into your remit and into your kind of DNA and hiring and everything else, uh, rather than necessarily shareholders, um, that that sets your editorial agenda and what you tend to tend to do. But equally. Because you are then publicly owned, it becomes a little more challenging to do investigative journalism or hold politicians to account. Yeah, I, I um, my experience is that uh, basically that certainly, if you take my, my most experience would be on would be on Channel Four. That Channel Four cares a lot about Channel Four news because it's such a big part of the Channel Four brand. Uh, it's never quite sure on a day-to-day basis what to do about that in terms of how it can influence this, its supplier. And I think, in truth, it wouldn't matter enormously if the supplier was in-house or out-of-house. It happens to be out-of-house, but I think the same issue would arise if there was a newsroom at Channel 4. That actually to bring a group of talented journalists together and say, make an interesting and slightly different news bulletin, uh, You know, the, the board of Channel 4... Is, it was very, very uncomfortable about any intervention, really, thinking it didn't really know quite what it was talking about, if you like. Uh, and I think, to be honest, uh, it's not giving away too many sort of trade secrets. I, I, I was uncomfortable with recent developments on, on, uh, over the – not so much very recent developments, but actually developments on Channel 4 News, say, about a couple of years ago. Um, but Channel 4 itself was was wary of any sort of intervention in, in, in its new supply. So that, that tells you – it tells you, tells you something about the way broadcasters – uh, are uneasy about, if you like, trying to influence the opinions uh, of their newsroom. They have, however, both BBC and uh, Channel 4 have in recent times, and actually talking about the BBC, I do remember once when I was involved in uh, for the BBC governors, a review of the BBC, uh, somebody the senior BBC News telling me, we employ a lot of very good people in BBC News and we don't like telling them what to do, which I think probably goes to the point I made about Channel 4. But on budgets... I mean, there has been relentless budget cutting by both BBC News and Channel 4 in recent years. And certainly the BBC one is very transparent because it obviously relates to the licence fee revenue. But in the case of Channel 4, uh, at a time of enormous you know, world events and, and, other, uh, you know, and other reasons for spending good money on news, Channel 4 has actually been quietly chiseling away at its news, uh, news budgets all the time. And I don't, and I think you know, my experience, John, is that I have never found any regulator intervening to uh, uh, stop a broadcaster cutting its news budget. And therein lies the challenge. I'm going to come on to regional news in a minute because I suspect that's uh, the, the the core of that issue. Um, Stuart, just uh, we'll just pause for a second. Uh, your when your when your hand is rubbing your face, um, oh, it's right. getting picked up on the on the okay. on the mic slightly. Um. One of the other things that's happened uh, on uh, dur- during the course of your career is the growth of, of, of dedicated news channels as opposed to um, interventions in the schedule. In terms of, I, I think I remember, I think it was probably Emily Bell, I think I remember talking about this at one stage, as to what is the mythical number of people who care about quality journalism, which I think you've talked about in the past as well. Um, and I think her view, I think it was her, but I think her view was, uh, you know, essentially, essentially it's the audience of Newsnight, which is, you know, at the time was probably around a million people or so, which is roughly overlapping the, the, the audience of, uh, of, of purchase of, of, um, of so-called broadsheet newspapers. In terms of the reach and scale and impact, how important is it that news remains part of uh, a multi, uh, a kind of uh, uh, a magazine publisher, if you like, of, of a linear schedule of, of a variety of formats, the mainstream channels. And the flip side of that is therefore how important 
by implication, is it to keep those channels strong so that they've got that audience and therefore that audience can be exposed to news? So essentially, it's a kind of bundling question. How important is it, does bundling remain to get new, to get the reach and impact of news to a big audience? Well, well it's absolutely essential to, to keep news in uh, the mainstream entertainment schedules of public service broadcasters and not be hived off, if you like, to secondary distribution systems. Uh, and the encouraging thing about recent uh, times, very recent times, has been that both uh, ITV and Channel 5 have actually decided to have more news, not less news. Now, how does that fit with everything else that's going on? I think it's the element about news that's always forgotten in these debates, which is actually in cost per hour, news is a very efficient uh, delivery system. It actually delivers audiences at a much lower cost per hour or cost per viewer than, say, drama does. Uh, and so you have seen broadcasters in their search for uh, efficiencies across their schedule. Uh, and the clearest example is, is uh, ITV, it's 6.30 to 7 news, is now 6.30 to 7.30, which, frankly, when I was there, was an unprecedented idea. And I wouldn't have dared ever suggest it if I'm from, thought to be a complete maniac. And But all I can assume, and I did when I was at Ofcom, I was privileged to uh, f f um, f figures which revealed what I had always suspected that actually news was a much more efficient uh, uh, delivery, uh, the way of delivering audiences at, at a good cost than, than than broadcasters ever like to reveal. So I think that's what happened is that as they've looked at some of their fundamentals, they realised uh, that actually why not let's have more of it. Now, uh, why would that change? Who can tell what the dynamics will be in, in the business going forward? Um, but I think, it's, I think it's positive news. I think it's encouraging uh, to believe, therefore, that if there wasn't a license requirement for news, perhaps some public service broadcasters would have it anyway, or even non-public service broadcasters would have it anyway. But I've, I mean, that, 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 you know, 20, 30 years ago, I would have been very sceptical that we'd reach the situation now where that a, a major broadcaster, say like ITV, if ITV was not a public service broadcaster, would it carry a news program? I think 30 years ago, I would have said no. I think today I'd say yes. One of the issues that I know you tackled uh, head on um, at Ofcom was the issue of regional news. Um, and the adjustment of the ITV license uh, certainly is part of that, 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 that kind of uh, PSB review time um, more recently, perhaps, the, the Can Cross Review, I think, summarized it very, very well. It was obviously looking at, at, at broader than just broadcast, um, but regional, regional local news uh, and nations and regions news, um, an important public good, poor market incentives to supply, and inappropriate for the state to fund directly. Um, really hard to, to, to kind of square that circle. Um, there doesn't seem to be anybody who thinks that regional news is not a kind of core public service need. I know you've stated that in the past as being um, critical to local democracy. It appears to have shriveled on the vine, um, despite the initiatives around BBC uh, sharing resources um, and a, a degree of top slicing in there. Uh, I guess two questions. To what extent has the argument been lost? Um, and that essentially just won't, won't come back. And if it has, what does that imply for the strength of the argument around other things that, that people are advocating around the importance of news overall? I mean, if, if basically, if one domino can fall, can others? I think the, the challenge to regional news was very much uh, born of a almost financial crisis at, at ITV at a time when Michael Grade was the chief executive. And his view, quite basically, was why do I have to have 15 versions of the, of the same program, if you like? If I can just put if I can just fill six till six thirty with with one program, uh, that's going to be much uh, cheaper than having to do fifteen different editions, uh, which is effectively, or, you know, that's the way the ITV regional system works. Then you question is well, but wait a minute, you have got an exclusive license to have a network which is based on a series of regional licenses. You've actually that's that's the point of ITV. And, and what commercial value are you putting on that? And what will you do in return for that? Well, the, the grade view 
was that he put very little value on that on that licensing system and therefore on, on regional news. Virtually the day he left and Adam Crozier took over, that position was completely reversed. And suddenly regional news was a sort of jewel in the crown of ITV. So I think it I think that challenge, and it was a very serious one, and I was involved in in and potential solutions to solve the problem at the time um, was was a, was a sort of uh, you know a, 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 you know it was a, it was a Michael Gray view or something he should do uh, to solve a particular problem at ITV. It's barely been mentioned since, but as you say, the the bigger picture on regional news has been, of course, the the decimation of of the regional print newspaper industry. Now, to a certain extent, the audience is now served by regional online uh, news. And I don't want to sort of down, uh, you know, decry the good work that is done by a number of you know regional journalists in this area, but the power of the BBC in the regions, and to a certain extent, the continuing power of ITV in the regions, is actually dwarfs really the impact of some local newspaper journalism online. And I think it's a sort of awkward truth that actually the the, the regional newsrooms of both BBC and ITV are the bedrock of British television news. And that the fact that Channel 4 and Channel 5 access that regional news via their relationship with ITN is, thank goodness for that, because otherwise I'm not entirely sure how how the system would work. But we've arrived at a situation where because we have regional news broadcasting in this country, we're not only serving those audiences, but we're providing national news coverage on on a total of five PSB networks. Again, I'm looking at the, the, the big trends that I think have unfolded during the course of, of your career, particularly the second half of it, I suspect. Um, how important is – one of the things that's shifted is the direct ability to raise money from a particular piece of content. So how important how, – how, how have the sands shifted around – or how important is the business model to the integrity of the output? So church and state of editorial versus commercial and ads being separated off into a break based on the audience but not necessarily connected to the content – as we move online, those those worlds get blurred. What impact is that having on the on the so called mainstream news, um, and uh, and and related to that? Uh, well, I'll come on to talk about platforms in a in a second because I suspect that's a that's a completely separate subject. So, just looking at how uh, how important is the is is the changes in the underlying business model to to way content is monetized um, connected to the integrity the, the editorial integrity of the output? Well. Broadcast news programs, in the in the traditional sense, let's call them either bulletins or rolling news channels, are quite isolated from that development in the sense that broadcasters attach revenue value to uh, the, the the you know the the airtime which is uh, they 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 find space for in those news programs, and that gives them a kind of bedrock. Uh, value for those services, um, and they, the, you know, the the, the broadcaster uh, provider, in the case of, of ITN, is then told to deliver a service of a certain kind uh, at a certain price. That's basically the way it, it applies. No one has ever, in my, certainly my experience, kind of broken down the elements and said, "Look, we'll pay, and so this bit has more value. We'll pay more less." The the kind of the, the unspoken. Uh, oddity about this system is that the value a broadcaster puts on their news service is totally dependent on where they choose to place the ads. Um, because the airtime requirements of Ofcom, and I know this having like, been for a time re- responsible for those airtime uh, rules, uh, allow broadcasters to shift uh, uh, spots you know, in different time slots. And that's, that's totally right. But what has happened, for instance, to give you a good example, is Channel 4 News. Channel 4 News at times has had virtually no ads in it. So when Channel 4 says that Channel 4 News is a loss-making venture or a loss-making <laughs> project, it, it would be if you didn't attach any airtime to it. So that has become the real model. The real model is how much airtime should we put into – commercial airtime should we put into the news programs or news programming – and what value do we get associated with that? Um, 
And that is much more of an issue in my mind than the one of, of, of carving out elements and saying this bit's got more or less value than that. But of course, the great advantage of this, John, has been that it has basically um, prevented broadcast broadcasters and broadcast owners of broadcasters interfering too much uh, uh, improperly, I would say, in the in the output. Uh, in my in my time at, at ITN, and certainly you know at the senior position at ITN, I can think of only two occasions when a broadcaster expressed their discomfort to, to me about an editorial decision. And both of them were about coverage of themselves. Um, and, you know, I kind of would expect that from time to time. But I, I, I got very, very, very little interference uh, from owners of broadcasting, of broadcasters, about uh, issues which you might expect them to want to influence. Are things shifting around the edges, given that uh, audiences are increasingly – that the, the, the reach of broadcast news is still pretty strong – um, uh, and certainly in relation to the printed press, but given the uh, increasing tendency for people to get their, their content from uh, from social media and feeds, and those feeds are not necessarily responding to an editorial agenda that's been controlled by the news organisation, they're responding to the algorithm that's serving up more stuff that is relevant. It, have you seen any evidence that that is, that is kind of going up the chain in terms of the content that's produced? No, um, I, I haven't, and that's not to say that it, it, it hasn't happened in, in, in some places. I mean, I think the clearest example now of this would be uh, GB News, which is by traditional standards uh, not only heavily loss-making in terms of comparing its uh, its running costs with the ads, uh, the advertising revenue, um, but the argument being put is that it's much more effective on social media. In other words, the model is sort of becoming now, as a, and I have to say it's an unproven model, you produce a 24-hour product and then you slice it up into little bits which you put out on social media and that that creates greater reach than the traditional uh, tr- transmission model will. And I think there's some evidence of that. I think in the case of GB News, that's probably true, that it's social media has more impact uh, than its broadcast service does. But what is the revenue associated with that social media uh, impact? And I'm not sure there is any, if I'm absolutely honest, but I mean, I'm sure GB News will at some point um, feel able to release figures. So that's the, I think if you think about it, there's something, there's a much bigger picture here that you've got BBC, ITN, and I say ITN rather than ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, because they're all getting news from ITN. So BBC, ITN, and Sky News are producing a staggering amount of footage. They're producing a staggering amount of content. And from that, all sorts of people are slicing and dicing uh, the core coverage, which is coming from those broadcasters. And if 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 you know if 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 somehow in a position I would never have dreamed, BBC, ITN, and Sky were not doing the good job they were, I think there would be an enormous democratic deficit in this country from people who are feeding off that that new that news gathering infrastructure. Um, and in the United States, I think that that the, it almost proves my case that as the as the broadcast news channel, uh, you know, the, the broad, American broadcasters have in a sense become serving a narrow a narrower base uh, the the people outside there have begun to take over the the impact and they've done it in a way which frankly challenges all sorts of issues about standards so if you look at fox news's coverage of the uh, of the congressional inquiry into the 6th of january i mean that is that has broken all conventions about how you cover a news story and it's done that because actually it, it, it's it's not reliant on any norms. Where actually I think the norms that we've grown up to in Britain about impartiality, accuracy, fairness are actually providing a hell of a good uh, infrastructure for other people, whether it be social media, to feed off. Uh, I'm I'm going to loop back to platforms. One of the things that uh, has obviously come out um, over the course of the last twenty years, really, is the is the growing role of platforms um, in in all of our lives on so many different dimensions. Um, to what extent? I think you've said in the past, you know, that they need to move on from rec- from claiming that they're not editors to recognizing that they've ended up as editors, <laughs> and increasingly, I suspect. Uh, will have um, re- regulation that will that will uh, reinforce that over time. 
to what extent have they, has that recognition been inevitable? Have they moved fast enough? And if you're if you're willing to, to what extent is the upcoming regulation, particularly around online harms, going to tackle enough and, and put the draw the line in the right place uh, to protect free speech? Well, it's 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 interesting. I did uh, do a turn for the uh, British Screen Forum uh, a few years ago, sort of predicting that. The, you know that that situation that the platforms were taking, which was uh, basically kind of nothing to do with us. We just, you know, we just. What was a wonderful phrase that was used? Eventually, going back to the sort of maze from the days from American cowboys, where a sort of conveyance system was a phrase like that, wasn't it? That, uh, um, we 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 just here to we just provide the pipes, if you like. That that's you know so much has moved on. And I think probably it, it you know, it, it's moved on because there were simply moments where it was not tenable to say that any longer because of, of certain events. So where have we got to on that scale of are they editors or they're not editors? Well, they're now from the days when certainly I sat across the table from them wearing various regulatory hats and they said, you better talk to our, our Brussels office because we don't talk to national governments about this sort of stuff. We've clearly moved on a hell of a lot away and they are having to talk to national governments or certainly national governments of the size of the UK about all these issues. Are there, are there resolutions to them? Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that there are. And I think Ofcom has got one hell of a job on its plate trying to find its way through uh, this next layer of, of regulation, which is it's being asked to carry carry out, um, I, um, I you know I I just think uh, knowing that, uh, since I was part of the Ofcom regime that said we can't do this or we don't want to do this, I now look at the position of the current Ofcom regime, which has basically been told you've got to do this, and I don't easily see how they're going to do it. Um, which brings us to the to the last question, really, which is looking looking to the future. Um, successive Ofcom public service broadcasting reviews have, to to simplify, tell, told a similar story, which is um, uh, the model that that has been built and which we've all inherited uh, is uh, coming back to the Canadian idea. You know, it's it's as it's as PSB possible under the circumstances, but how long can it last? Um, You've mentioned norms. I think the history of the last few years suggests that norms are fragile um, and, uh, and and can disappear quite quickly. Over the course of, uh, if you look at the kind of the period after the, 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 the likely date of the next election, in rapid order, um, new licenses for ITV and Channel 5, or, or Channel 3 and Channel 5, uh, potential for privatization, BBC charter renewal, um, Sky News budget no longer ring-fenced, um, and therefore may come under pressure. Uh, new entrants in the market like GB News and Talk TV, pressure on the platforms potentially to pay for content, but who knows. Um, you've said in the past, I think you referred to the British Green Forum thing you did, a, I think it was five years or so ago, um, who can predict more f- forward more than five years? And Nick Robinson's right when he says, don't panic. Um, are you still in a don't panic mood? And I guess what's related is what should the industry be doing now to avoid what uh, John Berta said, which is, you know, don't let things happen to you. What is it that, that the industry should be doing now to try and end up in the best possible place? Yeah, that's a good challenge. But, well, I think from what I've said already, you can see there is these conflicting strands, which is that, you know, having sat across the table from broadcasters over a period of about 30 years, uh, I know that their commitment to news is is sometimes uh, tactical rather than um, full commitment. Um, And my encouragement at the moment is based on judgments made by ITV and Channel 5 in particular, and to a certain extent by Channel 4, that broadcast news is an essential part of their service for a number of reasons rather than just a licensing requirement. I didn't I, I, you know, going back many years, I would not have predicted that situation was was as stable as that. I think it's based uh, on uh, financial efficiency, which broadcast news can can offer. It's provided it provides stability in terms in audience terms, and I think that's in, in a world of many uncertainties in the broadcast business. That's a, that's a major asset. Uh, is there is there a moment when the audience? Uh, 
has grown up more on social media and online media in general as a way of getting its news to the extent that the audience for uh, broadcast news becomes so small that even with the efficiencies of, 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 uh, of, of the model in terms of uh, cost per hour and cost per viewer reached, that actually there simply aren't enough people wanting to watch it to make it worthwhile doing. To me, that is, that is the real threat. I think we've always looked at, you know, all these generations and, you know, whether you, which, whatever uh, nomenclature you give them, a moment when there's people who just never, ever did watch a television news bulletin at 6 or 6.30 or 10 o'clock, and, and basically the audience has gone away. I mean, at that point, I find it difficult for regulators to insist that these, these kind of programs are part of a mainstream channel. So that, to me, is that is the moment, if you like, does television news fall off a cliff at a moment when there simply aren't enough people who want to watch it because they already have watched it by seeing uh, social media, online media during the day. They just don't need it anymore. That's, that's to me, the, the real problem area, if it's ever reached. And within that, that then becomes a different public policy issue, which is, uh, and all of this is interrelated, so does it make sense to make a public policy intervention to put more funding into the system to create the content, but then you need the mainstream linear schedule that people are actually watching? All of these things are, are interconnected. I'm reminded of a, a story I heard fairly recently of a, um, a teenager asking his, uh, his father, when did you start listening to radio? To which the answer is, well, we've always listened to radio. You just never have. And yeah. you know, the, 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 there was always this kind of idea that at some point people got a pipe and slippers and and, and reverted to, to, to expected behaviour within which the model can work. Um, and it's not clear that that lasts for very much longer. We shall see. We shall see. Stuart, you've been enormously generous with your time and your insight. Um, thank you very much for this. Uh, this will, uh, I'm sure, stimulate the debate um, and uh, look forward to future conversations. Okay. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you, Craig, for making it happen. All the best. In our next episode, we switch to children. Many of us have fond memories of the shows that we grew up with, often provided by the BBC and ITV as part of a carefully calibrated system of public and commercial funding. But few outside the sector appreciate both the importance and the current fragility of public service provision for children. I'll be joined by Anna Hume, the legendary BBC commissioner, and Greg Childs, who launched CBBC and CBBS. They are also, respectively, the chair and director of the Children's Media Foundation, an organisation that campaigns for the best possible content for young people across all platforms.